Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about the correct dimensions for a mortise and tenon joint? Do you struggle when working with end grain? Are you interested in exploring green woodworking, but you don't know where to start? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 14 of the show. Today is October 31st, 2017, so happy Halloween everyone. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over on Patreon including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Chris Durkay, Lawrence Polinsky, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, and thanks to a new patron this week, Jared Tolan. Thank you, Jared, and everyone for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So still nothing going on in my shop lately. I uh, haven't even really been working on any of those saws that uh, I had been working on. I finished up one of them. I think I mentioned that last episode or the episode before that. Uh, but I kind of put everything on hold for a little while so that I could spend some time working on the cabin to try and get that buttoned up. And I am happy to say we've made some pretty good progress on that. But, uh, you know, progress continues and, uh you know, we're going to, to, for the next few weeks at least, uh, continue to work on that to try and get things done before it gets cold, uh, try to get some power into the cabin before uh, before the winter so that maybe we can have some lights in there to be able to work on it uh, rather than having to run extension cords from the temporary power pole. So we're close to getting the uh, the electrical roughed in completely to the point where we'll be able to get our inspection and get permanent power brought into the house. So that's a, a big step for us. So we're trying to, to push towards that. Um, and we did lose power around here recently. So, uh, you know, that, that kind of set us back a little bit. We lost power for a couple of days. Uh, we had a tornado move through the area and, uh, knock out some power and knock a lot of, lots of trees down in the area. So, uh, that set us back a little bit, but you know, we're, we're moving right along. So we did get some feedback after uh, after the last episode. So uh, last episode, I uh, I had a question from Greg. Uh, he had asked about a portable workbench design that he was working on based on the Black and Decker Workmate. Um, so Greg had some feedback on uh, on the answer to that question. He says, "I just listened to your last episode, which was episode 13, and I appreciate the feedback on workbench design. In the episode, you assumed I would be working on a pair." Of simple sawhorses, but my intention was more of a saw bench. And Greg did actually attach some pictures of uh, what he was talking about. And um, indeed, what he was what what I would describe it as is a a wide topped saw bench um, with half of the workbench top attached to the back half of the saw bench, and the front half, you know, being able to move on a pipe clamp or, or twin screw type arrangement, just like a Black & Decker workmate would. Um, 
But he says, ultimately, it will be a moot point because your advice about the mass of said design will be its limiting factor. I am pursuing a hand-to-only path, so I will need to joint and thickness my boards by hand, so it will be better to wait and build a proper shop bench that can perform those tasks fully. So thanks for that um, feedback, Greg. I will clarify that um, while it is while I feel it's necessary to have a bench that is heavy enough to handle the um, if you're going to do a lot of hand planing, you you definitely want something that's heavy enough and large enough to handle that. That doesn't mean you can't get started without said bench, right? So I, I wouldn't recommend just waiting like what you were referring to. I would say go ahead and build that bench that you were talking about or, or use a workmate or whatever um, and just get some woodworking in by, you know, using some uh, some pre-surface material from the home center. You know, it might be a little bit more expensive for, for hardwoods at the home center, but the pine is fairly inexpensive. Um, and, you know, you can still do an awful lot of work with uh, pre-surfaced, pre-surfaced lumber from the home center. Um, I get some pretty nice clear pine from, uh, from my local home center. Um, you know, if you're willing to, to cut around some knots and, and things like that and rip narrower boards out of wider boards, you can get some pretty nice clear stock. Um, and I've built a lot of things out of home center pine. And, you know, your, the design, workbench design that you talked about really could be quite useful for finish planing because you shouldn't need a whole lot of weight to handle, um, you know, just smoothing off the surface of that pre-finished pine. So, um, you know, or even some poplar, you know, again, it'll be a little bit more expensive, but it'll save you a lot of that planing work until you can get, you know, to where you're going to be and get yourself into, uh, into a proper workbench for surfacing lumber. So, uh, definitely don't just wait around and do nothing. I would say, go ahead and get some woodworking done. You know, don't hold yourself back because you don't have a big, heavy workbench. Um, you know, go ahead and, uh, and, you know, build a small workbench or get yourself a workmate or whatever, and, and go ahead and use that, that pre-service stuff from the home center. You can still build some nice stuff out of that. And for what it's worth, our, uh, our, our patron only episode, our patron extra show that we do once a month for October actually will, will come out later today as well. Um, and that is, that's going to be, uh, just a short discussion on, uh, building or buying a workbench. So, um, you know, that, that would be uh, an interesting discussion for uh, for those of you who are patrons or if, if you're thinking about becoming a patron, uh, you know, you'll get access to that episode and, you know, hear uh, my thoughts on, on building or buying a workbench. So let's go ahead and get into the mailbox. Today's first question comes from Dr. Nono, and uh, I, I recognize the good doctor's name from uh, back from my old blog. I know he's been uh, following along for quite a while, so... Um, he says, I'm making a set of Chippendale chairs where the grain of the crest rail runs perpendicular to the grain of the rear legs. At the side where these two parts meet, the crest rail is end grain and the leg is long grain. What's the best way to make the end grain of the crest rail level with the long grain of the rear leg and also ensure a consistent finish color-wise? So for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the Chippendale-style chair, what uh, the doctor here is, is referring to is if you if you imagine the back legs of the chair coming all the way up, so the legs don't just support the um, support the seat, they extend up past the seat, um, and they create the back of the chair as well. Most dining chairs these days are made this way, um, as opposed to the Windsor design where everything joins into the seat. This is a, a, a joined chair, or, or some would call it a cabinet maker's chair, as opposed to a Windsor-style chair. 
where the back legs are probably, you know, 40, 40 some odd inches tall and they create the back of the chair. Well, the legs themselves mortise into the bottom of the crest rail, the crest rail being the piece that goes across the top of the back. So if you imagine uh, what, what the doctor here is describing, you mortise the, your legs, you cut tenons on the tops of your legs, and you mortise that into the long grain edge of the crest rail. So at the sides of the chair, you have long grain from the legs meeting end grain of the crest rail. Um, so he wants to know how can we, we level that out. So my what I would do and what I have done before is essentially just use a, a spoke shave. Once you have that chair assembled, doing that fitting should be fairly easy. Usually when you build chairs like that, the, the back kind of gets, the back section gets assembled before the front. Um, the chair frame usually isn't assembled all in one piece. How I've seen it done and, and um, is that you would typically assemble, you would do the, uh, an assembly of the back section. So your, your back, um, your back rail that would support the seat frame the two back legs and the crest rail would all be one assembly. And then your two front legs with the front um, rail would be a second sub-assembly. So when you have these two flat assemblies, it allows you to work on them and, and smooth them and work those, those curves out before you assemble the two side rails that join the front assembly to the back assembly. So what I would do would be to dry assemble everything. Uh, maybe, you know, use a clamp just to hold everything in position and get a good idea of where, what that crest rail is going to look like and where you need to make your saw cuts to trim that crest rail to size. Then I would disassemble everything, cut the crest rail just slightly oversized, and then go ahead, do the final, the full assembly, and then do the final shaping of the top of the crest rail. Because typically the, um, where the, the ears or where the sides of the crest rail meet with the, the tenons of the legs, you're going to leave a, a little bit of extra meat, maybe a 16th of an inch or less of end grain hanging over. And you can really just use a, a really sharp spoke shave, block plane, um, and clean all that up, flush it up with the legs, um, get out your scraper after that and, and clean everything up so that everything meets good and flush and, and the joints nice and tight. Um, with a lot of chairs like that, it's really best to try and get the joinery to fit before you do the shaping because it makes the shaping easier if the joinery is, is it makes the joinery easier if you cut the joinery when everything's square, get everything to fit tight and then go and do your shaping afterwards. So I've seen a lot of people, a lot of chair makers, um, what they will do is assemble the back frame and then any carving that needs to be done is done on the assembled frame. And that's why you would assemble it as a sub assembly so that the, the back frame is still somewhat flat and easier to clamp to the bench for any carving or anything that you're going to do, as opposed to if you glued the whole chair up before you did that work. So that's what I would do, um, would be to dry clamp it, mark out the, the crest rail, um, take it off, do most of the shaping of the crest rail that I could do before the assembly, then go ahead, cut the crest rail uh, to, to length glue everything up and then flush it all up with the, with the legs that way um, before I did any of my carving. 
um, as in, uh, as for the in, ensuring a consistent finish, uh, that was the other thing he asked. Uh, color, you know, end grain can be funny. End grain likes to suck up color. If you watched my um, Porringer table video that I did several, you know, ten year almost ten years ago now, um, I ran into a problem with the cabrio legs where the knees really sucked up a lot more color than the long grain because the knees had a lot more end grain exposed. So what I would say would be to first give a good wash coat of shellac and depending on what kind of finish you're going to use for the chair, just about any shellac will work Whether you know, a blonde, an amber, a garnet really doesn't matter. Um, because you're really going to be going for a wash coat here, maybe a half a pound cut just to seal up that end grain a bit. Um, and you're using it as a sanding sealer essentially, but it's also going to, um, restrict the absorption of any color, any dye into that end grain a little bit more. And it's going to help you out with, um, getting a little bit more consistent color on that transition there between the end grain and the long grain. You could even do more than one coat of shellac on the end grain section, um, and I would just brush it on because for the you're probably going to end up sanding through it anyway, right? After you put a, a coat or two of that wash coat of shellac on, probably lightly sand it with 400 um, or something like that before you do your dye, um, and that will allow you to to slow the absorption of the dye in the end grain and allow the color to get into the long grain a little bit better, and it'll help you even out the coat. Um, and then if you're still running into problems where you've got uneven color after you've done all the dyeing and, um, you know, you can use a glaze, you can use some kind of a toner to try and even that color out. So our next question comes from Sam and Sam says, my question is regarding in-canal gouges. I've heard you mention their usefulness more than once, but I'm unaware of specific applications where in-canal, where an in-canal gouge could or should be used. I've been woodworking for five years with only with only the internet and books for instruction, but there doesn't seem to be much content available on the actual use of in-canal gouges. I was hoping you would elaborate on this topic and give some examples. Additionally, I'm interested to know what sizes of in-canal gouges you believe to, mo to be the most beneficial and how to grind, hone, and maintain their edge. Um, so I don't know if I can go into all of that, um, but we'll, we'll see what we can cover. So I, I do personally find in-canal gouges very useful. Um, and in fact, if you look in Peter Nicholson's book, the mechanics companion in the joinery section, the only gouges he actually refers to are in fact in canal gouges, which leads me to believe that for most joiners and cabinet makers of the period in canal gouges were much more useful for them as well. Um, as opposed to out canal gouges, out canal gouges, um, in my experience are more useful for carving as well as for turning you know, so essentially shaping and decorative work, but not quite as useful for joinery work. I find the in-canal gouges much more useful for, um, for joinery and, and general woodworking. Um, I have shown some applications of, of where an in-canal gouge would be used, um, in several of my previous podcasts. And, um, I think if you go back, I'll have to, I don't know the exact episode, but if you go back to one of the earlier episodes of the podcast to the show notes on, on my website, I linked to some videos when I answered a question about in-canal gouges before, um, the, the ones off the top of my head that I can think of are on the Porringer tea table series. 
I use the in-canal gouge for the, pairing the concave areas of the cabriole legs. So behind the knees was a really great area for using an in-canal gouge. I also used it to pair the cove on the table apron. Um, there's a decorative, there's a decorative little cove cut there on the table apron and the, the in-canal gouge made extremely quick work of that and extremely clean. You know, there was no need to file or sand or anything after the gouge cut that cove. It was perfectly clean and ready for finish. Essentially any, anything where you think you would be pairing with a gouge. So consider, you know, an outside curve, right? So if you were, were making a curve on the outside, let's say the corner of a tabletop, right? And instead of a, a, 90 degree corner, you wanted to round that edge a little bit. Well, you could pair that edge with a, a straight chisel. You don't really need a gouge for that. Now consider how you would pair with a flat chisel. Typically you would lay the, the chisel on the surface to be paired and the bevel would be facing up. If you were to try to pair with the bevel down on the chisel, and again, I'm still talking about straight flat chisels now. If you were to try to pair with the bevel down, you'd have a, an interesting time trying to find the right angle to pair at. So it's the same concept with in-canal gouges. If you, can, if you think about how you would pair with a, a gouge and you would want to pair a surface similar to how you would pair with a straight chisel, you want that bevel to be facing up because the, the flat back of the chisel, the straight back of the chisel, is what you're using to help you pair that surface to the, the finish and the flatness that you want. If you use an out canal gouge, that's the same type of motion as using a flat chisel bevel down because now you have to angle, you have to try to find the angle of that bevel and you have a very short bevel that you're riding on when you're pairing. So it's not, it's not that you can't use an out canal gouge for those situations. It's just easier to use an in canal gouge. So essentially any type of concave area that you want to pair is a prime candidate for use with an in-canal gouge. So again, um, I mentioned the backs of the knees on the cabriole legs from the T-table. The um, you know, concave shapes on a table apron that you want to smooth and, and refine those curves, you can use an in-canal gouge. I use in-canal gouges tons when I'm building... Um, doors like cabinet doors, raised panel doors or, or cabinet doors with glass in them. If you have a cabinet door with any kind of molding on the inside edge, usually you'll have some kind of round over like a small thumbnail molding or something like that on the inside edge of the um, door frame where the raised panel meets the door frame. You need to usually miter. Most, a lot of people will miter that that molding where it meets, where the styles meet the rails, they'll miter that intersection. Well, the problem with a miter joint is with seasonal expansion and contraction of those rails and styles, what you're going to find is that certain times a year, that miter joint's going to open up and you're going to see a gap there. So rather than mitering, what I like to do is cope the joint. And essentially that means that one piece of the miter of the molding is actually coped over the other piece of the of the molding, usually the rails or the, the horizontal pieces, the molding on those is coped so that when the mortise and tenon joint is put together, the molding actually copes over top of the molding on the style. And what that does is it keeps a gap from opening up in the molding during seasonal changes 
because it's not a miter, it's a cope joint and it fits much tighter um, and it, it keeps that gap from opening up. Well, that cope is so easy to cut with a uh, with an in-cannel gouge. You, again, you can do it with an out-cannel gouge as well. I, I've done it with those too. But if you have an in-cannel gouge of a, of a decent size, usually about a quarter or a half inch, the coping that molding is a piece of cake because it's just a straight down paring cut. Once you once you have the um, the outline of where you need to cut to cope that molding, it's a straight down paring cut. You don't have to worry about trying to find the the exact angle. So um, so that's the way I like to think of it. Anytime I want to actually pair with a gouge, I'm not carving or, or turning, but I'm pairing like you know like pairing an inside curve on something. That's usually when I'm reaching for in-cannel gouges. In terms of sizes, I have a simple set that it's you know quarter, half, three quarter, one, and I find that they do just about everything that I need. Sometimes it would be nice to have a few in between sizes in the smaller sizes, maybe a, like a three eighths, um, you know, and maybe I don't know, maybe a five sixteenths, three eighths and a five sixteenths, something like that, um, you know, but. But bigger sizes, I don't find that I need need them too often. It's usually the smaller sizes where I want a tighter curve or or slightly slightly flatter curve if I'm pairing something um, with a tight curve on it. So, I but the I find that that set of four really does me does just fine most of the time. Um, in terms of grinding, honing, and maintaining the edge, I try not to grind them if I don't have to, and I find that if I keep up on honing the edge and stropping. I very, very, very rarely have to grind an in-cannel gouge. The The only times that I've found that I really need to grind in-cannel gouges is when I'm repairing the edge on old gouges. Um, and in that case, you usually have to set up some type of stop. You can't use a traditional tool rest on a grinder because you need to be able to, you know, turn the handle. So I use, I set up a stop, a stop that I can use to grind the inside bevel um, something like the Wolverine jig that you use for grinding gouges for turning. Um, it's very similar to that. You know, you can just put a, a piece of wood on um, on your bench top, like nail it down and, and kind of set the distance of your grinder away from that piece of wood. And you butt the handle of the gouge up against that piece of wood so that, that it can't be thrown back. And then you essentially have to grind it freehand. There's no tool rest other than that piece of wood that's going to keep it from getting thrown backwards. It does take a little bit of skill, a little bit of practice to get down. But, um, you know, with a little bit of practice, you can get it. Um, and I use a, a one-quarter inch wide grinding wheel that I have used my dr- my grinding dressing tool to um, to shape a radius on the edge of that grinding wheel. So it's a quarter-inch wide it's a quarter inch wide grinding wheel with a eighth inch radius, essentially. So it's it's a semicircle. I've I've for the most part shaped that quarter inch wide or quarter inch thick wheel um, with a into a semicircular edge, and that's what I use to grind my incanal gouges and molding plain irons and things like that for for that matter. Um, honing, you know, I use um, I use some Arkansas slipstones, soft and hard. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. You know, it's, it's all free handwork. There aren't any jigs that you're going to get that are going to really help you much with the, within candle gouges. So it's really a time you need to learn to, to freehand hone. Um, and you know, the strop really is what I think is 
does the most magic on ink handle gouges because if you keep them sharp and you keep them stropped, um, you shouldn't really have to grind them much and you shouldn't have to go to the stones much. Um, I, you know, I keep mine sharp and stropped and for the most part, I find that I don't need to, to hit them with the stones too often. Um, and I don't use a mallet with my ink handle gouges for the most part. That's usually all just pairing work. So that's another reason that, you know, you can just keep them stropped and uh, most of the time you don't have to do too much grinding or heavy honing with stones. So our third question comes from Alex. Alex says, I'm moving to a new house. The only space I have for a shop is going to be in the utility room in the basement. I live in central Virginia where humidity is a serious issue during the summer. It stays cool in the summer, but should I be concerned about humidity causing rust being in a basement or sharing the space with the dryer? Also, I'm starting on an arts and crafts style of baby changing table soon. I'm planning on using a lot of mortise and tenon joinery, but I'm not really sure on some of the geometry for the joint. What are the best proportions and is there a minimum size for a non-load-bearing tenon like the more decorative vertical styles or slats. So um, what I would, first thing I would say is um, is in terms of rust, you know, I, I am also in Virginia. I'm in southwestern Virginia, but I'm up in, in the Appalachian Mountains and, you know, it is humid here all the time for the most part. And I did find that if I did not protect my tools in some way, I would get rust on them, period. Um, now I am in an unheated garage shop, um, but even inside my my house, things will get rusty. I mean, I have rust on my refrigerator, so um, you know, on the outside panels of my refrigerator. Uh, so you know, you will get rust if you're if you're not protecting your tools. What I did was to build a traditional tool chest. Um, you know, people will will say you know that that they're a pain to work out of. Um, there are a lot of, of arguments against them and, you know, it's personal preference, but I have found that keeping tools inside some type of wooden chest, whether it's a, a traditional style tool chest, whether it is a cabinet tool cabinet that you hang on the wall, um, a Dutch style tool chest, whatever, if you can keep your tools in some type of wooden tool chest and keep that lid closed when you're not in the shop, when you're not using your tools, you're going to find um, that your tools stay much more rust-free. It has been a huge improvement for my tools. And again, I'm in an unheated shed. Um, it gets extremely hot in this shed in the in the summer. It gets extremely cold in this shed in the winter. And, you know, times of year like now and in the spring, it can be below freezing in the morning and by lunchtime it could be in the 70s. So we have huge temperature swings. And what that means is overnight your your tools get cold. That iron, that metal gets cold. And as the air temperatures warm up, the air can carry more, even more humidity, more moisture. And when that warm air hits that cold steel, you get condensation and you're going to end up with wetness on the, with condensation on the uh, metal tools and they will rust. No doubt about it. The wooden chest or wooden cabinet, you know, whatever it is, is going to do a couple of things. One, the wood itself is going to absorb moisture. So it helps it stay drier inside the chest. Two, it, it, wood is an insulator. So that chest will provide some insulation 
to your tools so that the, the surfaces of the tools themselves will not change temperature as quickly. I've already come into my shop where, you know, it was cold overnight, maybe in the thirties or low forties. And then I've come into my shop in the afternoon, say two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon when it was over 80 degrees outside. And I open up my tool chest and grab my block plane or some other metal tool that's in there. And the tool is almost ice cold to the touch because the wood has insulated and, and held that temperature that well. So in essence, it's slowing the temperature change inside the tool chest. As long as you're working with the tools, it shouldn't be a problem because you're going to constantly be wiping them down. You're going to get the oils from your hands on them, which can cause rust in themselves. But, um, you know, you're, but you're wiping that condensation off. You're wiping that surface rust off by using the tools. So the more you use your tools, the better off you're going to be. But if they've got to go, like for me, I haven't used my tools in weeks now because I've been working on my cabin. Um, I open up the chest and everything is still fine because the tool chest slows the, the rate of temperature change around the tools. It also slows the change in moisture around the tools so they don't get condensation on them as readily um, and they stay rust-free much better than they would if they were out on the wall. Um, you know, I love wall storage. I used it, you know, just open storage either on shelves or on racks or, or boards or, or hanging on the wall. I used it in my old shop. It's, it is still my favorite way to store tools, but it is not the way to store tools if you're in an area where you have temperature swings in your shop and humidity swings in your shop. If you're in a climate-controlled area, it's a great way to store stuff. Um, makes it very accessible and easy to see what's what you've got and what's missing. Um, but if you're in you know an unheated area, in a garage, in a basement, in an unheated shed, you know someplace where it's not climate controlled and you can't control the humidity, definitely some kind of wooden chest. Not a and I would say don't go with the you know the metal chests either because um, you know they're not going to do anything. They they don't seal tight enough. They don't have any protection from moisture, build yourself a nice wooden chest, whether it's a traditional chest, a, a cabinet, a Japanese style tool chest, just something that you can put those tools in, put the lid down and keep it, you know, keep a nice uh, air seal and dust seal and, uh, and keep most of that, that moisture out. And more importantly, the temperature change. I think that's even more important again than, than the moisture. Because it's really that temperature change when warm air hits cold tools, the moisture in that warm air condenses on the cold tools and that's what's causing, causing the moisture. So if you can keep the tools from coming into contact with that warm air, uh, that's going to help solve rust issues. So our last question comes from Jared. Jared says, I'm finding that end grain is my arch nemesis at the moment. Could you discuss some of the ins and outs of handling end grain with hand tools? For example, an ideal shooting board to build with hand tools or how to use a bench plane as a shooting plane. I've almost bought the Lee Nielsen 62 a couple of times now and I kick myself for not doing it every time I'm faced with end grain. I do have an old restored carcass saw that I use and can get rather straight cross cuts with it, but they aren't as perfect or precise as they need to be. I see folks with full width, full length end grain shavings, and they feel mystical and unobtainable to me. I'm curious as to how to take steps in that direction so that my joinery can improve. So, Jared, end grain. 
So the first thing I would say to you is to question whether or not you need to do anything to that end grain. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, and and when I'm working at my bench, I will I tend to try to avoid working end grain as much as possible. So you mentioned a carcass saw. So make sure that that carcass saw is tuned up well, that it cuts well, that it's sharp, so that it will cut cleanly. Um, and make sure you know when you're marking your joinery, you're marking with a knife. Um, you know, use what um, yeah, what Robert Re- what Robert Weering called a, a first class saw cut. If you're cutting, say, ten inch shoulders or something along those lines, knife your line, um, your cut line, and then take a small chip out with a chisel, a little a little wedge shape down to your knife line, and that'll give you a place for your saw to run in. And that's going to help you make those cuts a little cleaner and a little bit more accurately. And maybe you will not have to clean up your end grain cuts as often. So that's number one. Try to get better with your saw so you don't have to clean up end grain as often um, on things like tenon shoulders. Number two, um, when I am working with things like tenon shoulders, I like to undercut them. So I will do what I just mentioned, you know, first class saw cut, make the saw cut make the knife line for my uh, my baseline, remove a little wedge so that my saw can ride in there nice and cleanly, cut that tenon shoulder, and then I will take that tenon back to my bench vise and slightly pair and undercut on the tenon shoulder. And that makes sure that the outside of that tenon is going to close um, and that I don't have to worry about any fuzz or anything from the saw keeping that shoulder from closing tightly when I assemble that joint. In terms of other end grain, um, if I'm if I'm cutting a piece of to length that I need for a rail or something that's going to have a tenon on the end of it, I'll cut it as close to square as I can get it, but then I don't care. Um, the end of that tenon is going to be buried inside of a mortise, so I don't care if it's clean. I don't care if it's square. Um, it really doesn't make a difference. So I'm not taking that to the shooting board. There's really no reason. I will cut that rail stock to length, um, you know, using my my sash saw, carcass saw, whatever, um, and then I will use a square, not a marking gauge, to mark the shoulders for my tenons. I don't use ever use a marking gauge to mark the shoulders of my tenons. I know some people do. Those are usually people who have come to the craft from who, who have come to handwork from power tools. So they're cutting their rails and styles to length on a table saw with a sled or on a chop saw, and they're getting really clean square ends on those cuts so they can just run a marking gauge around. Traditionally, you would not have marked your shoulders that way. You would have marked the shoulders of your tenons with a square. And that way, you don't have to worry about whether or not the ends of that board are square or not. Now, dovetails are a different story. Typically, you are using a marking gauge to mark your your baselines of your dovetails. You don't have to. You can still use a square, and I have done this before. Um, just Usually, it's just to prove a point that you still don't need a square edge to cut dovetails either. You can just use a square, cut your baselines, uh, mark your baselines with a square instead of a marking gauge. Um, but it is much faster to use a marking gauge if you've got a lot of dovetails, a lot of dovetailing to do and a lot of, um, like a lot of drawers or something like that. So that's a case where I will use a shooting board. 
but my shooting board for years and years and years was very simple. Um, you know, it was three pieces, four pieces of wood. You know, I had a, say a one by 12, a one by 10, and then a cleat for the bottom and a fence. The one by 12 was the bottom board. The one by 10 was glued and screwed to that board from underneath. The fence was screwed, glued and screwed square to the one by 10. And that by gluing the one by 10 on top of the one by 12, it left a, a chute or a track for the plane to ride in. So as long as you make the fence square to the edge of that one by 10, you've got yourself a, a shooting board. It's, it's a very simple thing to build. Shooting boards do not have to be complicated. Now, I did make a somewhat more complicated one recently, um, and I did write a blog post about that, and I will put that in the show notes because it, it, um, it, it does include an adjustable fence, but it is a completely unnecessary addition. You can just glue and screw a fence to a piece of wood and use that for your shooting board. You'll be perfectly fine. You can use plywood if you've got that laying around. Anything flat um, and straight will do the job. Um, the real secret to working end grain is sharp, period. It doesn't matter what kind of shooting board you have. It doesn't matter what kind of saw you have. It doesn't matter what kind of plane you have. The secret to working end grain is sharp. And that is the only secret to working end grain, sharp. I, I had a low angle uh, Lee Valley plane years and years and years and years and years ago. Um, I probably owned it for a year or two and then sold it because I found out I really didn't use it. I didn't like the ergonomics of it. Um, and I just don't, to me that I didn't just didn't like the low angle planes. Um, I have not found a real difference in, in shooting end grain, you know, between low angle planes and standard angle planes, if they're both sharp, what you will find is that a low angle plane may, and I say, I stress the word may feel like you're, you know, using a little bit less effort as the iron starts to get dull. So as your iron dulls in a standard angle plane, it's going to get harder to start to push that iron through the end grain. Um, so it's going to feel like you're pushing harder and you may, it may even tear a little bit more. What that means is not that you need a low angle plane. It means that you need to stop and sharpen your blade. Um, when you've got blades that are equally sharp, low angle and high angle, there's really no difference. Um, I have used wooden bench planes, wooden smoothing planes as high as 55 degrees to plane the end grain of Eastern white pine, which is notoriously hard to plane. Um, you know, because it's, you have this alternating hard, soft ring pattern. Um, and it, and that, Softwood is extremely soft, so it tears way before it wants to cut. Um, but if the iron is sharp, it really makes no difference. Like I said, I've cut, I've, I've used anything from a low angle, you know, low angle smoother all the way up to a 55 degree wooden bodied smoothing plane on shooting boards, um, as well as just planing the end grain in the bench vise. Um, and they all work just fine as long as the iron is sharp. So if you're really having a lot of problems planing and grain, I would say it's not the plane that's at fault and it's not 
it, it may not even be your technique that's at fault. What I would really suggest is that you work on your sharpening. Make sure that you can really get your iron sharp. And the sharper you get your iron, the easier time you're going to have of it. And then, you know, you also want to make sure you're taking a light enough cut. A light cut for um, face grain and a light cut for end grain are not necessarily the same thing. I've set up planes where they cut real nicely on, uh, you know, a nice light cut on face grain or edge grain. And still the cut had to be reduced to plain end grain, depending on the type of wood. Sometimes the cut has to be increased to plain end grain. So you're going to have to play with the setting a little bit. But the, the most important thing is to get your iron sharp. So the, what it sounds like to me is that that is most likely the problem. And that if you can make sure to really work on your sharpening, get your irons really, really sharp. Um, and that should improve uh, your the, the luck you're having with uh, end grain. All right. So that's it for the questions for today. Let's get into our main topic. And what we're going to be talking about today is getting started with green woodworking. You know, this is a, a great time of year to start thinking about green woodworking if it's something you've been wanting to get into because the fall of the year is when all the sap starts running down out of the trees. The trees are losing their leaves. The sap is down. Um, you know, things are going dormant. And that's the time that you really want to be looking to cut trees down if you're going to um, cut your own for lumber. Um, so that's what I want to talk about first, actually. You know, let's let's talk about what green woodworking is. So the term green woodworking is, some, is a, a term that was coined or, or popularized by Jenny Alexander back when she wrote um, Make a Chair from a Tree, uh, which is a fantastic book and a fantastic video. If you have not read it or seen the video, I highly, I highly recommend it. Um, the, the term green woodworking was coined by Jenny as part of the process of making that chair. And essentially what, what you're referring to is, is taking wood and working with it before it has been dried. And so, and that's what we refer to as green wood, wood that has not been dried, neither air dried nor kiln dried. So, and it's important to make that distinction because I'm not just talking about wood that has not been kiln dried. I'm talking about wood that has not been air dried yet either, because you can chop wood down from a tree and split it into boards or split it into bolts. And if you try to go work with that wood, uh, two or three years later, you're going to find it much more difficult. And I, and because that wood is not green anymore, it's not wet. So what we're talking about with green woodworking is freshly sawn or freshly cut wood right from the tree. So, you know, when, when we're, when we're talking about that, we have to really consider the wood first, right? Because that's, that's the main thing with green woodworking is we're using a different material and I, it is a different material. And I will stress that it is a different material. Um, it's not like wood that you may be used to working from your lumber yard, from your home center, um, it is not kiln dried wood and it is nothing. It's not like working kiln dried wood at all. So you really need to figure out where this wood is going to come from. So you, you really have two options. You can cut your own and I'll talk about options for that in a, in a second, or you can buy fresh cut wood for most people buying their lumber is probably going to be the easiest choice, but where do you get green wood from? 
Um, I have had luck sometimes with local tree services. Um, I had a, a place that cut down a tree in my backyard back when we lived in New Jersey that they actually used to sell the lumber. They would, they would, they had a wood miser and they would mill and sell lumber from trees that they cut down. Um, and I had some luck getting some lumber from them. Um, but you have to watch with tree services because they're not going out picking the best trees. Most of the trees that they're taking down are problem trees, nuisance trees, either they're dying, um, or they're in the way of something, right? They're either too close to the street, too close to a house, too close to a driveway. Um, they, you know, maybe they fell over in a storm, whatever. So a lot of times the trees that they're getting already have issues, which is going to make working with them without any power tools even harder. Um, so if you're going to go to a tree service, you're going to want to be very, very picky about the, what would you will, what would you go home with? Uh, a firewood supplier is another potential place you can go. You might be able to get some short pieces from guys who cut wood for firewood. Um, several years ago, uh, my friends of mine from the Central Jersey Woodworkers Association and I, we built a joint stool based on uh, one from in a museum in Albany. And we went to a gentleman who cuts firewood in central New Jersey and he had some big old oak trees and we were able to sort through his log yard and, uh, and find a tree that we could use that was straight enough that we could get some decent stock out of it. But again, you have to be picky. Again, these guys are not looking for good trees for, um, you know, for making furniture and for doing woodworking. They're just looking for trees that they can cut down and turn into firewood. Um, it will often split easier you know, than some of the stuff that tree services get, but sometimes it's the same wood. You know, sometimes these guys are taking, you know, tree service wood and splitting it into firewood. So, um, the third place that I would suggest that you go to is the lumber mill itself. So go to the place that you buy your hardwood from, if they mill their own lumber. Um, if you buy your, your hardwoods from, you know, woodcraft or, or just a place that deals in hardwood, you're probably not going to get anything there. But if you can go to a mill, some place that actually brings in the logs, mills and dries the lumber themselves, and then sells that lumber. You had a good chance of getting some decent wood there. And, you know, what you want to do is go and, and talk to the guys, the, the person that runs that, that mill and see if you can buy some veneer quality logs. Just one probably is all you're going to need. Um, and you want to look for something that is dead straight. You want to look for something with the pith of the tree right in the middle of the log. You don't want it offset. You don't want bark spiraling around the tree. You don't want the rings weirdly shaped. You want a tree that looks like it was drawn with a compass with the, the pith right in the center and the bark running straight as an arrow up the sides. That's going to be your best chance of finding some good splittable greenwood that you can use for greenwood projects. Um, which brings me to my next point. Um, you know, with green woodworking, you're usually making your own lumber from the tree. So you're, you you w- want to make sure that the trees that you get are good split are going to split easy. If the trees have a lot of twist in them, um, if the pith is off center, if the rings are oddly shaped, 
and not nice and round, you're going to find problems and you're going to have issues trying to split that tree. Um, and that's just going to cause frustration and you're going to turn your nose up at this whole green woodworking thing because it's just way too much work. If you can get good logs, it, it's amazing what you can get out of them. And it's amazing how satisfying the work can be to split out boards and split out pieces for projects directly from the log. Um, so the other option for getting logs is to cut your own. Now you might be lucky enough, uh, like me where I have 10 acres of woodlands, so I can go walking through my woods and look for a good tree and cut it down. Um, maybe I have a tree in my woods that's usable. Maybe not so much. I don't know. I, I haven't explored enough and, and looked for green lumber, um, or green wood in my woods enough. I'm usually, you know, out there looking for deer sign or something like that rather than looking at the trees. But, um, you know, if you've got some property and you've got some woods, you can cut a tree down on your property and use that. But there are other options. Seek out your state's um, forestry service. Back where I moved from in New Jersey, the state forestry service, you could get a permit to cut firewood. And in a lot of the state forests, you could go in there. They would usually mark out an area where they allowed people to cut firewood. And I think it was up to like 20 cords or something like that. Um, and they charged maybe, I think it was $20 or, or $50 or something like that. And you could cut up to like 20 cords of wood. Uh, and if you don't know, if, if you're not familiar with, you know, wood stoves or fireplaces, um, a cord of wood, a, a single cord of wood is a lot of wood. It will typically fill, you know, like a, uh, one of those landscape dump trucks, a cord of wood will fill that just about. So think about 20 truckloads of wood, how much wood that is. And for about 50 bucks, you can cut that enough trees to get you about 20 cords of wood. Um, so talk to your, your forestry service and see if they have any programs like that in your state where you can go and cut firewood because they'll allow you to go in and you have to, you know, you can only cut the trees that they marked that are allowed f for cutting, but still you can go in and you can pick the best of those trees and cut down, you know, one or two of them and have all the wood you need for your woodworking, your green woodworking for the entire year, maybe more. Um, so that's another possibility as well. If, uh, if you're going to cut your own. So now that you've got this wood in your hands, what are you going to do? What are you, what are you going to do with it? Well, I think you need to decide first what kind of projects you're looking to do. Um, if you're looking to do, you know, there, there are lots of different possibilities, lots of things you can do with green wood. Um, most Windsor chairs start off life as a log. Um, so if you want to get into Windsor chair making, I would consider that some, you know, a type of green woodworking. Um, ladder back chairs or post and rung chairs as Alexander uh, called them, you know, they are a type of green woodworking and you split your parts out from the log and work them down into chair parts. Um, spoon carving can actually be done, you know, with branch wood. Actually, a lot of people prefer to do it with crooks and, and branches because you can get some really neat, um, some really neat looking spoons and, and shapes out of a crook or out of a branch. So that's a great place to use branch wood because you're typically not looking at branches, um, for other types of projects where you're looking to get straight boards, um, joined work, um, look at some of the boxes that Peter Follinsby builds or the joined stools 
that Peter Follensby builds or the joined chests that Peter Follensby builds or the wainscot chairs that Peter Follensby builds. As basically look at anything that Peter Follensby builds um, and you'll see you'll have all kinds of ideas that you can do with green wood. Now, he primarily uses oak and that's because that's what was traditionally used in the period that he does most of his work out of. Uh, he will occasionally use some walnut. I have seen him use that. Um, but, you know, you can, there are certain woods that are easier to split than others. So you want to keep that in mind. And that's why you see so much um, green wood done with woods like oak and ash um, and sometimes walnut um, because those woods split very easily. Um, and it, it makes them easier to work when they're green and easier to split out your parts. So once you've got your projects, now you got to think about your tools. So a couple recommendations that I have for tools. Number one, I would stay away from iron planes. Um, ask my friend Frank Vicolo what happens when you leave an iron plane on a piece of uh, wet oak overnight, and he <laughs> he'll be glad to show you the pictures. Um, when we were when we were doing our, our joint stool project for CJWA. Um, Frank had planed down his stock, his green stock, his green oak stock with his Lee Nielsen number four bronze smoothing plane and left the plane sitting. I think it was, he actually left it on the, uh, on the log itself overnight. Um, and for those of you who say bronze doesn't corrode or bronze doesn't rust, um, let Frank show you the pictures of his plane, um, overnight. And I mean, overnight. Like it, it ate this, the, the tannins and the moisture from the oak just ate this plane up and he took him, you know, quite a bit of work to, to get it back and restored and cleaned up. So I, I tend to not use iron planes, metal planes on green wood. So if I'm splitting out some stock for a joint stool or a chest or whatever out of green oak or other green wood, I'm usually reaching for my wooden planes then. Um, yes, the irons can still rust, but it's, you know, fairly short, short, uh, process to pull the irons out, wipe them down with a little oil when you're done. And then the, uh, the moisture from the wood and the tannins from the wood don't bother the wooden body body of the plane. It's much more difficult to get all those shavings out and get an entire iron bodied plane oiled, um, and cleaned up. But if you do decide to use wooden uh, iron planes on green wood, I would suggest that at the end of the day, when you are done using that tool, you do completely take it apart, disassemble it, strip it down, clean it, and oil it because the, the tannic acid and the moisture in that green wood will certainly corrode um, the, the iron in the plane and the steel of the blades. So... Um, just something that I typically do is to use wooden planes with green wood. Marking gauges is another one where I use a, I have a gauge. I wouldn't say dedicated to green wood, but it's a gauge I don't usually use for my dry woods. And that is a traditional conical marking pin. Um, if you try to use a marking gauge with a sharp knife or a knife-like point, you're going to find that what's going to happen is it's just going to split the fibers of the green wood. It's not going to leave a mark and those fibers are just going to close back up after the marking gauge passes and you're not going to have a mark. Um, a knife style or a wheel style gauge, of course, will work across the grain of green wood. So you'll see it there. 
But if you need to make a mark along the grain of green wood, forget it with your knife style marking gauges. You really need to have a traditional pin style gauge because that's the only way you're going to get a visible line um, in green wood um, along the green. So that's uh, I have a, a gauge that I use for the most part that is, is just for green wood uh, with a, a pin style gauge. And it's not a very sharp pin either. Some other useful tools would be uh, wedges, obviously iron wedges and a, you know, a lump hammer of some sort so that you can drive the wedges in and split out your pieces. Um, you're going to want to have some kind of saw that you can use to cut the wood. Now you can use a chainsaw if you've got one. If you don't, you can get a, you know, a bow saw from the home center fairly inexpensively and they rip through green wood um, very quickly and, and, and very well. So that's a, a good option for cutting your your green wood um, hatchet at some type of hatchet, whether it's a hue, you know, single bevel or double bevel, doesn't really matter. You're really using it for hewing and removing waste very quickly, getting down to closer to the dimension of the stock that you want. Um, when you split parts out of a log, you're going to find that you have a lot more wood to remove than you would if you were sawing boards. So, Ripping doesn't work too well in green wood, so but splitting does. So using your, your wedges and your fro, which is another tool that I haven't mentioned, but another useful tool is a fro, you also use for splitting. Um, your wedges, your fro, and your hatchet, you can remove a, a good amount of the bulk before you take that uh, lumber into your shop or over to your bench to hit it with the bench planes and turn it into a board. Uh, other than that, most of the tools that you're going to use are fairly standard cabinet making tools. You know, once you you get started on the joinery, the joinery saws, the chisels, um, you know, they're all pretty much the same. Uh, it's really getting up to, it, it's the processing part that's a little bit different. And that's where you're going to find that you're going to want, you know, a few wedges and uh, maybe a sledgehammer, um, you know, a good lump hammer. And, uh, and a fro and a fro club so that you can process that lumber and then a good hatchet. Um, you know, any hatchet from the hardware store will probably work. Um, or you can go, you know, and get one of the fancier brands, fancier, uh, Swedish or, or uh, yeah, Swedish brands of, uh, of hatchets. Any one of them will work. Uh, they're just really used to, to remove material before you, you take it to the bench. But I, you know, it's something that I started doing, I don't know when the first time I, I did green woodworking was. It, it had to be probably eight years or so ago when I, I first tried my hand at green woodworking. And I will say it's it's a very addicting way to work, um, being able to just take a, a tree or take a piece of fresh split firewood and, and turn it into something. Um, as long as you, uh, you know, watch the type of wood that you, you use, again, you want to make sure you're going with straight grain Make sure you, you clean your tools off to uh, keep the moisture and the uh, tannins from the fresh sawn wood off of it so it doesn't corrode your tools. Um, and, you know, just search the web for green woodworking and green wood projects and you will be more than uh, more than inspired by what you can do with uh, with green wood. So uh, I would say get out into the woods and uh, and look for some look for some limbs look for some trees that you can uh, take down maybe take one down and plant two in its place uh, that you can maybe harvest a, 
a few years later. So, uh, but give it a try because it's it's a lot of fun. Um, it doesn't take much more in tools than you would use for your your typical cabinet work, um, and it's just a whole lot of fun to do. And it gives you an opportunity to work with some woods that you may not normally work with because you know anyone who's worked with uh, work with with flat sawn kiln dried oak, um, you know knows that it's not a whole lot of fun. But if you work with riven uh, green oak, it's a it's an entire entirely different material and an absolute pleasure to use. So uh, I I would highly recommend giving it a try. Get out in your woods or get over to your mill and look for some green wood and uh, and give it a go. It's a whole lot of fun. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt014. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can become you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can send me a handsaw for sharpening, and you'll find links for all of these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everyone.